This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer-A-Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer-A-Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. If you have a family relying on your income, you need life insurance. But finding the best quote shouldn't take a lifetime. That's where Policy Genius comes in. In minutes, Policy Genius could save you 50% or more simply by comparing quotes from America's top insurers. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team handles all the paperwork and red tape. To save on life insurance and get protection for you and your family, head to policygenius.com today. At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch, now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture. And when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space. Just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in-store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. It's another film study. As we got one more week of the regular season to look back at, we're going to look back at week 17 today. Ken McCusick, how are you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing, I'm doing great. I am uh, back in Florida, back in the warmth, so made it through my trip to Baltimore, and I got to see you a little bit this weekend, which was great. It was fun. Fun to get, to get together with you and Coach for breakfast. It was a, it was a good time, and uh, appreciate you coming up for the, for the meal. Yeah, of course. Uh, now, we've got this... Week 17, which is funny because it's as much as we're going to break this down and all, it's the game that had no stress, nothing to worry about. But uh, 
let's first, before we get to that, let's introduce our guest. So the, the guest for today is Bo Smolka, who I, I like whenever I hear Bo on the radio or on Glenn Clark Radio from Pressbox because it's someone that finally has a last name similar to mine. <laughs> so, Bo, welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, uh, so we have a, sh- a Shroka and a Smolka. Right. Got it. Right. All right, so you, uh, Bo, so you work for Pressbox. I know you're on Glenn's show weekly, and uh, you're writing daily for Pressbox about the Ravens right now? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I've been, this is my third season covering the team for Pressbox on a va- basically daily basis through the season. And uh, I've covered the team now for nine years. My first six were with Comcast Sportsnet. So this is basically my ninth year covering the team full time. I was a city or a night sports editor at the Baltimore Sun before that. Uh, but this is my ninth year covering the Ravens on a basically daily basis. All right. Well, make sure you go on to Pressbox Online and read all that, pressboxonline.com, because everyone that's writing over there is just great people over there. So, Well, thank you. All right. Outstanding. Well, uh, Bo, before we get into some of the other stuff we had planned, I want to really talk with, about a topic you brought up today to me. I didn't realize how far this had gone already, but related to Greg Roman. So why don't you introduce it for us? Well, again, Greg Roman, the offensive coordinator for the Ravens, has been the, the, the Cleveland Browns, who fired Freddie Kitchens after their game on Sunday, have formally requested permission to interview Greg Roman for their head coaching job, which, as, as I said, is now vacant. Um, it probably shouldn't be a surprise that when a team goes 14-2, and two, people are going to start snooping around for the coaches. The protocol is the teams have to request permission from the other team. John Harbaugh confirmed today that the Browns have requested it. And will the Ravens will allow him to interview? I mean, normally when you're looking at a situation like this, it's a promotion to a potential head coaching job. John Harbaugh said, we welcome it. We encourage our guys to look around. They, they like the idea that these guys get opportunities like this to interview. Um, and so that's where it's at. Uh, John Harbaugh said the interview will probably take place this week uh, because next week they're in game planning mode for the playoff game. They have this bye week when teams can um, be involved and discuss things with with Greg. And so the idea is the the Browns will talk to him. Um, And there are other candidates there with Cleveland. But, yeah, it's it's gotten farther enough along that his name is there. Now, I will say, Wink Martindale, the defensive coordinator, his name has also been – has come up in various speculation about a potential head coach. And, again, when you're 14-2, and your coaches are, are going to be desirable. John Harbaugh said today that there haven't been any, any formal requests for Wink Martindale yet, but that doesn't mean they won't happen. But with Greg Roman, it has happened. The Browns have requested to talk to him, and they're planning to do so this week. Browns, an interesting fit for Roman, and I agree with you on Martindale as well, is likely to get interviews. But an interesting, an interesting question about Roman, because they really do not have an offense that is stylistically similar to what you'd expect a Greg Roman offense to look like. You know, a run, a quarterback who, who's very mobile, a uh, bunch of larger tight ends who are who are blocking. You know, really emphasize the run game. They do have Nick Chubb that they're they're set on on that angle, but they're definitely not set from from having two or three top notch tight ends. You know, playing with a fullback or having a fullback who can who can also play H back there. They they have a uh, you know an offense that's based on a pocket quarterback who's got some mobility, 
And they've just spent a number one draft pick overall last year to get him. It seems unlikely that they would not at least try and reclaim Baker Mayfield under whatever new coach they hire. I agree with that. And I don't know that, I mean, I don't think it's as simple as saying this offense with, with Greg Roman worked here, Greg Roman can come here and make it work at, at point B. Um, it comes down to the personnel. And as I said, the, the personnel and the roster construction for the Ravens right now, I think is ideally suited for Greg Roman. Uh, you mentioned his, when he had Colin Kaepernick in San Francisco, he had a terrific run offense. He had uh, Tyrod Taylor. He had strong running backs in Buffalo when he was the offensive mm-hmm. coordinator there. He's always had good tight ends. And so when you look at, and this is how he wants to operate his offense. There's no secret. This is how he's done it everywhere he's been. So it's no secret that this is what works for him. And I don't know that it would be a great fit. I guess if, if you're the Browns, sure, you're going to take a look at him. The other thing that I look at is, is how would how would this, let's just say for a minute, Roman goes to Cleveland and wants to set up an offense like this where he's going to frame it around Nick Chum and maybe he's going to try to create more of a run-first offense. I don't know that how that would fly with Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry. <laughs> the Ravens happen to have very unselfish receivers. With Seth Roberts, Willie Sneed, Marquise Brown, none of these guys are squawking about not getting the ball. None of them are arguing that they're not getting enough attention. I don't think that happens in Cleveland with the personnel they have. Well, I mean, I think if you look last year to what happened with John Brown in the second half of the year and his fall off. And John Brown then goes to Buffalo, has a terrific year this year, and he clearly was an underutilized talent during the second half of last year. I've been spending a little bit of time on the Cleveland boards. One of the things I I get on the message board is a a big thread about one thread we can all – one thing we can all agree on. And it's basically that whoever they hire as head coach – needs to come and work with the talent they already have. They believe the Browns team is already very talented, and I think they're right. Both on the offense and defensive side of the ball, there's a lot of stars, a lot of playmakers. They obviously didn't mesh together this year very well. They didn't have a particularly good offensive line, for example. But to completely change the system would be an odd way to go about fixing the Browns, and to me, not the obvious way that they would go. So I, you know, I think there's two sides to this. I, I'm not sure the Browns want Roman, although they've asked to interview him. That's certainly right there. But, you know, maybe the question is, would Roman want to go to the Browns? He's got a great gig here. It certainly can last for a while with Jackson being who he is. And is the next, can you pick your next stepping spot? Make sure that, you know, you're acquiring a number one draft pick or a first round draft pick uh, quarterback who meets your approximate desires. I think that's a good question. I, I, I'm not sure it is a good fit for Greg Roman. I think, um, as you said, that Cleveland roster is loaded on both sides of the ball. Um, they've got top five draft picks. They've got they, they added Beckham. They've got talent on both sides. And and I do think to some extent it came down to fit. I agree with you. I think the kind of play of the offensive line was a big factor for them this year. And I think that's one of the places they'll look to shore up. But another thing, as you said, you know, yeah, Greg Roman, I think, is in a good spot. And I think he likes being here. Let's face it. You've got the likely MVP in the league, and he's here for at least a few more years. Um, There's a lot worse positions you could be in. So I think it would have to be a fit that works for him, too. Um, Will He's going to do a, you know, he's going to do his weekly media session this week. It'll be interesting to see what he has to say. But 
he and Wink Martindale have both said they really love being here. It would take an awful lot for the, to see them leave, to have them leave. Um, it would be a chance to be head coach. But if I'm, again, it's not my money, so it's hard for me to say. Mm -hmm. It's easy for me to say. You're talking about six head coaches, I think, in seven years in Cleveland. By this time next year, they will be on their fourth coach in three years. Um, and the the instability there, and, and just, there's just so many questions. Um, if you were a, a coach that thrived with a pocket passer, thrived with a big aerial game and big receivers, and I think that's a better fit. Um, so, And there's other people they might look at, but it's an intriguing thing. It's not a surprise that Roman's name is out there. It's certainly not a surprise that Wink Martindale's name is out there. But I agree with you in the sense that I think there's a lot of questions about whether he is an ideal fit for what he wants to do and what Cleveland has. No, no news on other people. Josh McDaniel, is he rumored for Cleveland or not? Do you, have you heard yet? I've heard he is rumored. I've also heard Mike McCarthy, the old Pat, uh, the uh, Packers coach, is rumored. And, of course, the other name that comes up all the time in Ohio is Urban Meyer. Mm -hmm. um, but, again, I'm not following that search all that closely, except to the point of view that um, Greg Roman's name is involved. Okay. Well, great stuff on Roman. Wish him the best, certainly. Let's move on and talk about the Ravens a little bit more in terms of what happened this last week and then what, what we have to look forward to in the playoffs. One of the fun things about this game, it wasn't it wasn't a high-stress weekend coming up to the game, so you walk up the long Ravens walk, and there's the football game's going on, and there was just a tremendous amount of interest in that Dolphins-Patriots game, for starters. And it, to me, I'm looking at it, I'm saying, I really don't want the Chiefs getting a bye week. I don't want an easy road to them. I want them to play, and then I want them to have to go to New England and give them every chance to get tripped up. And of the various teams in the AFC that, that the Ravens could face in the AFC Championship, getting way ahead of ourselves, of course, at this moment, the Chiefs are the one I'd like them to avoid. I, I've said for a month that, that that the Chiefs were the most dangerous team um, to face. And, and frankly, if Patrick Mahomes doesn't get hurt, they might be the number one seed, for all we know. You just don't know. Um, but they're an extremely dangerous team. They've, they're 2-0 and against Lamar Jackson. Um and I and the fact that the Patriots went out and lost at home, I, I agree with you. I think now that New England has to go to Kansas City, it makes the Chiefs a much more formidable opponent overall. I think it, it, it strengthens their case to go to the Super Bowl tremendously. Um, they would still obviously have to come to Kansas City or come to Baltimore and win. But I think I don't think there's any question they're the most dangerous team in the that the Ravens might have to face. Yes, completely agree. I thought otherwise around the league, I don't have any real problem with the way anything worked out. Tennessee's a stronger team than Pittsburgh. That said, I wasn't real keen on the Ravens going into week, uh, going into the end of the year with a loss. Kind of like this. Kind of like the fact that the Ravens hit all their marks, uh, even though it doesn't mean a whole lot in terms of the the yardage record and the and the nice two hundred yards on each side of the ball, those kind of things. Don't know if you followed Devoa at all, but the Ravens are. It, wound up as the seventh-highest-rated DeVoa team since Football Outsiders has been keeping the statistic in 1985. So they're, they're only behind a few teams in that. And, and they also became the only the fifth team in NFL history to average over three points per drive. They're, they're actually fourth overall at 3.08 points per drive. I didn't see that, but I know their offense has been incredibly efficient all year. Um, if, you, if you look at just on a, the, the, I think when Lamar Jackson tied Vinny Testaverde's T 
team record for touchdown passes. He did it in something like 150 fewer throws. Um, and I think Lamar Jackson's, I think Lamar Jackson's improvement in the red zone. And I've written this before. I think it's one of the most important and maybe not so much talked about topics of the entire season. Because if you go back to July and August, so much of the and last year, even Jackson said he was frustrated. So often they stalled in the red zone. And here comes Tucker for a 26-yard field goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was so much talk about, can he be accurate enough in the tight spaces of the red zone, in the compressed space, in the shorter windows, in the quicker timing? Can he, can he be accurate in that area? And I believe through the Kansas, through the Cleveland second game last week, he was, if I'm not mistaken, because I don't have the numbers right in front of me right now, in the red zone, he was 23 touchdowns and no interceptions. That's remarkable. Um, their, op- their, their offense operated at an incredibly high level in that red zone with Jackson. It wasn't always how you drew it up. If you remember, he had kind of a freelance touchdown to Nick Boyle in one game, a little sidearm throw to Miles Boykin in one game. But again, they got inside the 10, and they, they ended up with touchdowns. So instead of getting six points, they're getting 14 points because they're not getting two field goals. They're getting two touchdowns. And that all adds up over the course of games. So I thought the way he played in the red zone all year – had a lot to do with that scoring efficiency that you're talking about. Yeah, there's two things I've seen from Jackson that are very specific in the red zone. One is he's an outstanding reader. In the L.A. game, there's a, a great video done on him reading the leverage on a five-wide situation and seeing the guy who had messed up the inside leverage and being able to throw a touchdown to Snead on that play at L.A. But it wasn't just that. It's a Dan Orlovsky video, by the way, if you want to find it. But it's really worth I watching. See, I know what you're talking about. Yeah two, three minutes. But anyway, the other thing about Jackson is that you have to defend the whole field against him, but he also has the ability to be mobile and get outside and create other vectors, other passing lanes to those five targets that are better than you have with a pure pocket passer who has limited in terms of his fade options and zipper and the other things he can throw, the other few select obvious red zone routes that everybody knows of. And and he has much more ability to throw a flat pass because of his ability to create those additional angles. He's, he's been a great red zone quarterback. He's been a great pressure quarterback. Those things often go together because you're often facing a, a blitz from six or seven or even eight men when you're down on the goal line. So it's uh, it's it's just been great. It's been a magical season. It's so, so few things to really complain about. I agree with you in that I remember seeing the Snead touchdown you referenced at Los Angeles. James Urban, the quarterback's coach, and Greg Roman – have said since probably April, they have praised Jackson's vision, his field vision. Um, And frankly, I think it's better than Flacco's was. Flacco sometimes lost defenders over the middle of the field. Sometimes Flacco would throw an interception. You say, what what did he see there? Absolutely. Um, I think they have praised Jackson's field vision um, throughout, throughout this whole process. And I think it's only gotten better. So and and the way he's breaking down a defense at the line of scrimmage and once the play unfolds, which is also challenging, but the way he sees the field and the vision is something that has been consistently praised by Greg Roman and by James Urban. Yeah. All right, wonderful. I thought we'd play a little game here, a little lighter topic, but we'll be fast with this. I'm going to name a lot of the things that went right because football fans in general – I think sports fans in general want to find the things that are wrong so that they have something to complain about. There were a couple things coming out of this game, but I want to talk about the things that have gone right right now. And specifically in terms of how much portent they have towards any kind of playoff advancement the Ravens are going to do. So we'll just keep our answers short. None, some, or a lot 
for each of these items. Okay. So the first one is the Ravens are the number one seed in the AFC and have the best record in football. None, some, or a lot. Poor 10 for the playoffs? Yeah. I think a lot because it gives them the rest and it gives them the home games. There you go. I'm with you a lot. They will play a home game in the divisional round on Saturday 111. And the, and the reason I brought this up is so they have the best possible relationship of opponents' time off before and after. Um, I, I'm not some. I don't, I don't think it's a huge issue. I think that um, this, this team is wired to compete, and I think they'll be there whenever. But I, I, I see what you're saying, but I think it's some. Okay, I'm with you and some on that. Third one, they signed one of their key defensive playmakers, Marcus Peters, to a three-year extension on Saturday. I mean, a lot in terms of the playoffs, he's a huge part of what they're doing. Um, uh, whether they signed him or not on Saturday, this weekend, I don't know that it had anything to do with the playoffs, but him being there has a lot to do with it. Right. I, I agree with that, what you're saying. I, I would say none on this one. I really don't know whether a more motivated Peters, because he's going to be there for the playoffs no matter what, but a more motivated Peters to get a contract would have been better than you know, whatever other considerations come into it now that he's already got the money. But a more motivated Peters might have been a might have been a reason to wait on the contract. Okay, go one I more. What, I see what you're saying, but they love Peters. He's 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 kind of quiet with us, but I can tell you in the locker room he's highly respected. Marlon Humphrey calls him one of the smartest guys he's seen in the meeting rooms. And he's been a he's got a little swagger and sometimes that works the wrong way, but I think they really like that and I think they're really pleased to have him. Definitely, uh, he's a piece of sandpaper out there for the other team on the field. There's no doubt about that. It, it, let's go to another one. They sat six Pro Bowlers, plus a first alternate for the season family, yet they beat their arch rivals who had a playoff spot on the line. Any portent for the playoffs? Only that it helps a guy like Mark Ingram and Mark Andrews and those guys get healthy and more rested. So I think it certainly is a. I think it's certainly helpful. Okay. I'll go with you on that. As uh, some will say, we're saying, despite playing without their biggest offensive playmakers, they needed only modest changes to their game plan to roll up an impressive win in difficult offensive circumstances against one of the league's best defenses. Uh, uh, some, I'm not sure. Let's face it, RG3 probably isn't going to see the field in the playoffs. Um, if he has to, maybe it helped. I think Gus Edwards producing like he did is is something that helped. And I think a lot of their other players that were big yesterday are guys that are going to be big in the playoffs. How about Justice Hill getting a bigger playoff role after his game? He could. He's actually had two good games. He had a good game at Cleveland, too. I think he's coming off two really good games. I thought his touchdown run, I expected him to be more of an outside swing pass guy, quick, uh, which they've used him for. But he looked like Mark Ingram on the touchdown run in the second quarter. He had to break some tackles and batter up the middle. So I think he's looked, he's he's coming on strong, which is good to see. Three, three broken tackles in a row on that play. I'd be really upset as the Pittsburgh defensive coordinator having to talk to them about that on the bench. But that's another discussion, I guess. Uh, all the record shattering they did. Obviously, they shat shattered the, the rushing record. They hit 200 in both. Any portent for the playoffs out of that? Not really, other than this is how they play. And if, if they succeed in the playoffs, their, their games are going to look like this. Okay, I'm in agreement with you on that. Probably probably nothing specific additional on that. How about they held the, the Steelers' star receiver to six targets for two catches for six total yards? I don't know that it's a lot playoff portent. I just think part of it was the Steelers are limited. Um, Hodges is limited. They got pressure. And they, they have done a good job on, on top receivers for the most part. I think Humphrey's been really good on them. They had Anthony Avert a couple of times on Schuster yesterday. And they, couldn't, mm -hmm. they couldn't find him. I put a lot of that more on, or as much, I should say, on Hodges and that offense that they do on this defense. Although 
that's not to take away from this defense, which has done a good job in general against top targets. They they have indeed. The weather certainly probably had something to do with it as well. Let's let's move on. I, there were some things that were not perfect from this game. I want to bring up a couple of them. Please toss in anything else. I thought one of the things that did not work it was running. The, when the Steelers ran the ball with their jumbo package, that's the one with Zach Banner, who's an enormous man, six eight three sixty. I did not know this, but he's the son of Lincoln Kennedy. The, the old Raiders defensive tackle. But anyway, he uh, he was in there in the jumbo package as a sixth offensive lineman. That's where the Steelers had their really on their only suggest, uh, success. They ran the ball nine times for 53 yards. That's pretty good, by the way, when you worry about their best set of plays getting 5.9 yards per, per play. That's not terrible. But the Ravens didn't really have an answer for it in terms of being able to shut it down. They had all the answers for Hodges, but but nothing in particular for the for this package with Zach Banner. I mean, that's something that teams might take a look at and say, hey, look what worked here. Um, the, setting the edge, especially against the run, I think Jalen Ferguson has been inconsistent with doing that. Um, teams have at times been able to run on this team. And that was interesting. They kept, I, I don't study the formations as well, much as you do, but I do remember seeing they were down by maybe two scores and they were still running that jumbo package out there and trying to run the ball. Um, and again, they're missing Connor. They're playing a, a down the depth chart running back as well. But Another team might look at that and say, hey, you know what? If we do this, if we try to go big here and we can beat these guys to the edge or we can contain the edge or we can contain Ferguson and get him out of here, we might be able to succeed. So I don't I, I agree with you. It worked for them to an extent. And I bet you these playoff teams are, are looking at that. Everybody watches everybody's film. That's certainly true. What, one thing I wanted to point out with this is that the last few weeks I've been basically talking about the Ravens' failure to stop the run with the standard nickel. The standard nickel is 2-2-2, uh, two, two and two, defensive linemen, outside linebackers, inside linebackers, with five, of course, defensive backs. Okay, the jumbo nickel, which the Ravens now are playing more than the standard nickel, you take out your second inside linebacker, which is Owasso, and by the way, is I think a source of a lot of frustration for Owasso, and put in an extra defensive lineman. They'd be very effective with that jumbo nickel. Both the jumbo and the standard were good in this game. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But what's surprising about this game is the Ravens still respond to the sixth lineman package with their base defense, so three down linemen. So now the base defense is almost like the heaviest package they're willing to put out there. I'm looking at the conditions. I'm looking at Hodges. I'm looking at the other situation on the field, I'm going, why wouldn't? In the past years, I think we'd have seen a fourth defensive lineman on the field, whether that meaning spreading it out and, and, and going six wide along the line of scrimmage with one inside linebacker or doing some of the other things that they that they could have done to uh, you know spread that line of scrimmage out. But if, if you have trouble setting the edge, basically having another jumbo in there will help you a lot. And that's what the jumbo nickel did uh, in, in terms of improving their defense uh, from the standard nickel. Was that when they use that jumbo? Is it is it Pecco that comes in as part of that? He, he would typically be part of it. Um, it. He would almost certainly be part of it. But they, I've, they haven't... I've been really impressed with him. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, he's been good as a guy that's come along off the another guy that they brought in off the street in the middle of the season. I think that's just so remarkable that they've been able to do this with three or four guys. I mean, one thing you trade for Peters, but you bring Josh Bynes off the street. You bring in. Ford off the street, you bring in Peco off the street, you bring in Ellis off the street. Ward. And they've all contributed to it. Peco especially, I think, has been a guy who's really helped them. Now, again, we talk about the running of the Steelers, and Brandon Williams didn't play, and he's kind of a cha game changer sometimes with the run. 
not always are along the edge like we talked about, but um, I watched Pecco the last few weeks, and you know, in limited when when you see him in there, I just find him to be. I think he's been really a really impressive player for them over the past month or so. Yeah, he he was uh, he was in this package, of course, this this time. But the, the big impressive play he had was the diagnosis of that screen pass right. So he yep. was on the pass rush. He diagnosed it going to Schuster. I think it was Schuster anyway. It was Schuster. It, yep. it went went for a loss of five. But not only did he diagnose it, which is you know the Ravens have, have been lacking, I think, in that department since Terrell Suggs left. He also tracked it down, which is impressive, yes, impressive for a big man. And then Carr was able to clean that up. I did. I know exactly. I, I, I remember watching that and thought Pecco got all the way out there to the edge with him. Um, yeah, and then Carr knocked him out. It was about a four-yard loss. Yeah, that's the play. That's the play. Uh, wonderful. Okay, so that was one of the things that, that, that didn't wasn't perfect. You have to be as balanced as you can. I think the tackling was quite poor in this last game. Uh, Owasso had a couple of missed tackles. He got lost in some traffic as well. But the, the missed tackle in the 19-yard run that set up their touchdown was a bad one. Uh, if I had to pick one, if, uh, respond to the tackling thing if you like. I'll, I'll move on to the next thing if you if you if you nothing to say really. No, go ahead. I, oh. they, it, it's been inconsistent at times, but the, you know they they missed a couple. But yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Okay. So the the other thing that I have a more significant issue with, I think, for the playoffs is that all of the pressure they have to generate is really schematic in nature. So meaning they either have to rush numbers or they have to demonstrate they have to use deception by means of either uh blitzes from off the line of scrimmage stunts or dropping two plus men which is kind of simulated pressure looks uh in order to confuse the enemy to get uh you know these these uh easy rushes or uh, sorry uncontested rushes on the quarterback uh they're not getting very much in terms of wins one-on-one at the line of scrimmage with their with their front four no, and that's been an issue all year. It, it has led them to they, – they are more of a blitzing team than almost every team. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that is where they've been successful. That that hasn't changed all year, really. Their three, four-man rushes are not having much of an impact at all. Um, there was one play in that game uh, against the Steelers. I can't remember now which it was. It might have been one of the long throws, maybe the one he lofted just over Marcus Peters. But anyway, he had all day to throw, and I think that was a three- or four-man rush. And – so that's, you know, in theory, you have your defensive guys out there covering. You have good cover guys covering, but that's a lot of time. And But they will be more aggressive. It is generally how they've been more successful, and so you can expect they're going to do it. Of course, that's a gamble, right, because you bring other guys. Now you've got fewer guys covering. So it's an aggressive frame of mind, but it's what's worked for them, and it's what Wink Martindale wants to do. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's worked with him tremendously well. Martindale's really becoming Ryan in those terms. Just to back up some of the points you just made, um, they rushed four on nine plays, nine of the twenty-seven dropbacks in this game, and it was one of the only ways that the Steelers again were successful with eight point one yards per play on those throws, with five plus eighteen plays, four yards, zero point two yards per pass attempt with the with a five plus man, which which is often the definition of blitz that people use. Uh, Martindale at halftime had used seven four-man rushes in the first half, and he's been just great at adjustments this year. Game after game, I find the things that he does differently in the second half, but only two four-man rushes in the second half, so it was enough of that in terms of uh, what he'd been successful with, and and he went to five-plus pretty much exclusively in the second half. 
Well, I think that he, um, part of that is you trust your secondary, right? Because you're going to bring one, or sometimes he'll bring two, sometimes he'll bring three, sometimes he'll bring these guys on an all-out blitz. But, you know, you, you trust the guys that are in coverage if if you're going to bring Brandon Carr, if you're going to bring Earl Thomas, who I know didn't play in the game last night, or if you're going to bring Marlon Humphrey. Um, there is an element of trust that these other guys you're leaving out there on an island can can handle it. Um, and, and for the most part they have, but you're right. This is, this is how Martindale's scheme is. Um, I didn't know the specifics yesterday, but it struck me in the second half that it seemed the pressure with pressure was ratcheted up noticeably. So it doesn't surprise me as you analyze that. That's what you uncovered. All right. Well, the other thing we look at, and I'm, I'm a big fan that numbers have been the thing, by the way, recently that's been successful for the Ravens, and it really counters a lot of this, but I'm a big fan of deception as well. 17 blitzers from off the line of scrimmage individual in this game, uh, seven stunts and 10 two-man drops. You don't have anything to compare that to, Bo, I know, but I, I just tell you, those are at the highest level of deception rate per dropback that we've seen this year. And it had 10 deceptive pass rushers and just 27 dropbacks is outrageously high and they gained a total of nine yards on those 10 deceptive rushes that had two or more elements like two blitzers or a blitz and a stunt or a blitz with a two-man drop etc etc but they only gained nine yards or 0.9 yards per play on those plays that included both sacks and the takeaway yeah i figured you know and it's interesting because remember they saw a little bit of hodges in pittsburgh in week five and he actually moved the ball down the field on them after mason rudolph got hurt so I thought that Martindale, knowing that he was going to be playing and having seen him when they really weren't at all prepared for him the first time, um, would have some other twists and, and things set up for him, which also goes back to this idea that the Ravens, and I give them credit, they flat out went out to win that game. Um, and I know people say, well, it didn't matter. They were the one C. They can rest guys. But you watch the way Marlon Humphrey competed and the Martin Peters competed and Matthew Judon competed. Those guys were out to win, and Wink Martindale was out to win, too. And so I thought that the effort from them, especially on defense, was was at a really high level the whole game, and I give them a lot of credit for that. Yeah, they were playing with 45 in the game because Jimmy Smith ran on the field and was announced with the defense in a baseball hat, obviously, so he didn't play. But beyond that, you're, you're, you're talking about Peters and Humphrey, and Iman Marshall and Jordan Richards were available at the end of that game to go in at corner if needed. In fact, they played the last play of the game. Amon Marshall was somebody I wanted to see more of. I'd love to see. I was real happy to see a lot of Averitt, but I would have loved to see some of Iman Marshall too. And yet the winning of the game came first, it seemed like. Well, it's funny because John Harbaugh said after the Cleveland game and they had it wrapped up, he said, look, the first thing about next week is we're there to win the game. And you don't know if he's really meaning that as a coach speak, but no, they clearly played it to win. I saw at one point, I don't know, in the second quarter, it was a play where Peters made a tackle and got banged up a little bit. He looked really uncomfortable. He came out for maybe two or three plays yeah, and Marshall right. went in in his place. And I actually thought, oh, that'll probably be it for Peters tonight. Marshall will go the rest of the way. But again, Peters obviously wanted back in, and he did go back in, as you said, until the very end of the game. So I would have liked to see more of Marshall. Um, but those guys, as I said, those guys played hard. And I asked Matthew Judon after the game, I said, hey, did did – did you go to Harbaugh and say, hey, I want to play? Was there any thought to you maybe taking the game off too? And he said, no, it's a game. I want to play. I'm a baller. That's exactly what he said. So those guys really played hard. Now, had Humphrey torn his ACL or something happened, then you might <laughs> question it. But 
they competed and they wanted to play and, and they obviously played to win. It's uh, it's very difficult. You can't protect everybody. I mean, you've got a 46-man roster. Anyway, you've got a 53-man roster. He's going to only hide seven to start with. Then they hit Jimmy Smith. That's an eighth guy. There's You can't play with a whole lot less than that. And even if you did, you'd still be exposing players who are very important. And in your starting 22, it doesn't matter. So I don't think there really is a way to hide everybody in that final week. You can hide a few people who are currently. No, I mean, it's not training camp when you have 90 guys. And that's why I was telling people all last week. I said, you can't just rest all your starters. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have 90 players anymore. So they, you know, they, they took the prudent way out, I guess you'd call it. Resting Ingram, who's hurting. Resting Mark Andrews, who's hurting. Resting some of the older players resting Jackson. So he's totally immune to injury in that way. Um, but, and, and, but as I said, I, I didn't expect Humphrey and Peters to play the whole game as they did. But again, if you, if you, Averitt did play a lot. Um, so there's only a couple other cornerbacks, as you said, they, they could have played a couple others. Marshall certainly could have played more, but Richards. Um, they went out to win and those guys played, as I said, and I give them credit for playing at the level they did. Yeah, it's good to see. Anyway, sitting out there, I can tell you, all day in that rain, which was absolutely no fun at all. Be, having having a win at the end of the day was kind of nice, and also having the the sequence, the comedy of errors that occurred for Pittsburgh at the end of that game. I I take a lot of Schadenfreude in just uh, seeing them drop a punt and getting getting swarmed over, and then the safety when Hodges tried to throw the ball away. All all good to see. Yeah, we'll talk about Brandon Carr more, but the other thing is, I thought was so interesting was Chuck Clark after the game and. And someone asked him, hey, you know, did what was the, the mood of this when you guys didn't really have anything to play for? And Chuck Clark, another one who played almost the entire game, he said, I wouldn't say we didn't have anything to play for. We're trying to knock the Steelers out of the playoffs. That's exactly what he said. And so that was the mentality that, look, these are the Steelers. And we're not giving anything to the Steelers. We don't like the Steelers, and we don't want them to succeed on any level. And yeah, so... Very- that was the mentality in that locker room was this is the Steelers and we want to beat them because they're the Steelers, regardless of anything else. And so um, they obviously went out with that mentality. Chippy, chippy game along those lines. Really a rough game. Obviously, I, I, I'm i not a fan of what T.J. Watt did. I'm glad that was flagged. This crew, you know, obviously doesn't throw a lot of flags. We heard that about that during the game. But to throw the forearm to Griffin uh, was bad. You know, and it was it was premeditated too. It's, he had to, he had to think ahead to know to do that. <laughs> and the other thing I thought that they really were taking liberties with ball fake allows hit after the read option. And and Griffin was livid about it on the field. Well, he was livid. I by the third or fourth handoff, he was going back and talking to the referee mm-hmm. to explain that he thought he was taking shots. And then two or three more times in the game, it happened again, and he kept talking to the referee. There were times during timeouts he'd talk to the referee. It happened again. It happened again. And then, yeah, he took it. Then he won the one late one. He was furious. But, again, that had been building, and he had talked to the referee most of the game about that. I noticed in the first quarter he was already talking to the referee about that. Um, and he was asked, Griffin was asked about that afterwards, and he said, and again, he doesn't want to criticize the officials because they end up taking it out of his pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he was kind of polite as well as he could be. But he made clear that, look, this league is supposed to be about protecting the quarterbacks. And he didn't feel like he was getting protected at all. He thought they were late. He thought there were cheap shots. He thought the quarterbacks are supposed to be protected in that situation. And he didn't think they did a very good job of it. So it was something that built throughout the game. And it was something that, as I said, he was on that early with the referee and referee. 
They let it go on and on and on. And I know he was he was furious about it. By the time he got to the point where he reacted the way that everybody saw, that had been building for probably three quarters at that point. Right. Uh, the other one I wanted to talk about was Chuck Clark. And I, he's grown up as a defender. He's the captain of the defense, but you don't really always get a good sense of it. He's the signal caller, so we know that. The green dot moving to him has been of tremendous value. But the other thing I noticed in this game was there was a play early in Q3, I believe it was, when Peters followed a motioning receiver, and I believe it was Washington. Yeah, it was definitely Washington because it was on the 15-yard run. So he followed the motioning receiver from the right side of the offense's perspective to the left. Peters followed him. Clark moved up, tugged the back of Peters' jersey, told him to get it back over to the left side. You don't see that too often. I mean, it's something you see from Ray Lewis, certainly. We, we saw it for years in terms of him repositioning defenders. But for a third-year player who's new to the green dot to reposition Peters, who's a star player, obviously, and also you know thought of as being an intelligent guy who really understands how the defense works as well, I thought was very surprising. I'm glad he's got the, uh, the balls, the understanding, the whatever it took to, for him to make that decision. Uh, I think Chuck Clark's been one of the real – uh, emerging stories of this team. Um, this is, I think, a sixth-round draft pick a couple of years ago. That's and right. really, um, you know, you didn't know what he would become in this defense because at the start of the year, of course, you had Tony Jefferson, Earl Thomas, and Clark was a guy that might fit in somewhere or another. Then Jefferson goes down and Clark is involved more. They're having trouble with the communication with Owasso early in the year. And they say, wait a minute, Clark is a guy that is – a lot of the people in the on, in that building will say Chuck Clark is one of the smartest guys on the field. Um, defensive players say it. Earl Thomas has said it. Coaches have said it. So to give him that responsibility was telling to begin with. Um, he's thrived in that role, and the other players have kind of deferred to him because they really respect his knowledge and what he brings to it. And so I remember the play you're talking about because I noticed it too. And I thought, oh, look at Clark. He is such a leader of this defense mm-hmm. now. And as you said, that that's something it's a it's been a real evolution to watch over the course of this year, what he's done. And um, so it, it was it was exactly kind of typical of what this defense has been this year. He has just taken command. And at, at the start of the year, if you looked at all that team and I know they lost five players. Right. So mm-hmm. a lot of the question was. Who are going to be the leaders to step up in this defense after you lost Suggs and Mosley and Weddle? And people figure it would be Earl Thomas and maybe it would be Owasso and maybe it would be Brandon Williams. but Jefferson. Or Jefferson. But Chuck Clark has been the guy that has just really evolved into a um, no-doubt-about-it leader of this defense. And, and he's earned a lot of respect in that locker room. Well, just schematically, it, it's – enormous to the Ravens that Clark can handle the signal calling. And and the reason is this, that the Ravens do not want to use a, a any forced player at inside linebacker. Inside linebacker is one of only two positions that can have the green dot, realistically speaking. Never goes to a cornerback. Defensive linemen are rotational, so are outside linebackers, so they can't have the thing. You can give it to an inside linebacker, and the Ravens for, for many years had their mic being the signal caller even when it wasn't Ray, Josh Bynes called a couple games in 2012 and Nick Grison and McLean and a bunch of other inside linebackers had done it. But the only other position that can really do it is, is safety. And you can do it at strong safety. You can do it at free safety. Last year, they did it with Weddle at free safety. 
And I thought they actually gave up schematically some things to get that done. Obviously, Weddle had one of his worst years for interceptions. But also, Weddle, because he might have to cover the back end of a nine route and then communicate up the line of scrimmage, that's a much more difficult task. Uh, Being a strong safety, and he played free safety in this last game, but being a strong safety, uh, much more easy for Clark to be in the right position to do this. And if you look back in particular at the Patriots game, Patriots run a very fast no-huddle offense. And Clark was able to get those blitz calls in consistently and immediately. They were able to substitute within packages that had the same number of defensive backs and still get the calls in properly. It was a masterful job. It's one of those things you really look at and say, I can't believe he was able to do this in his first year in this role against the Patriots and really stop the Tom Brady no huddle effectively with his ability to relay the calls. No, I agree with you. He's kind of quiet and unassuming in the room when you talk to him. But as like I said, all the players are just, they rave about his intelligence. Um, <clears throat> and I, again, I don't study the formations as much as you do, but I know you watch him sometimes. He's in kind of a dime role, strong mm-hmm. safety. He's up close, basically playing an inside linebacker in terms of the geography of the field. Yep. Um, but he's a great communicator with them on the field. He diagnoses what the other team is doing a lot. Um, and as I said, it just comes with enormous confidence. And people also talk about the play he took at Buffalo where he kind of took a deliberate offsides when the, when yes. the defense was totally not ready. Um, they're down about the two-yard line, and, and they're completely out of character, out of sorts. And he basically just took an offside call, which they knew would cost them a yard, but would give them time to get set. Um, well, but again, I'll tell you, just to say on this, that was 100% for certain called in from the sidelines to his helmet. So he would have he would have not done that on his own, but he he knew Martindale said, "Hey, look, stand right by the center. You you we're not letting this play get run." Yeah, but he has been again. When we talk to him, he's kind of quiet, unassuming, goes about his business, but um, he's played with so much confidence this year. And like I said, you really see it in the the way the defensive players respect him. And as you mentioned, a guy like Peters, Peters has a lot of swagger. I don't think Peters is a guy that takes real kindly to people telling him what to do. But he totally, I think even he has only been here a couple months. And I think he's bought into, you know, the idea that Clark is running the show out there. And, and I, I've been so impressed with what he has brought in terms of leadership to the way he operates that defensive, you know, pre-snap setup. And, and even once the play has happened, obviously, he's made some plays too. But um, diagnosing and getting things ready and, and earning the respect of those teammates has been big. Yeah, I I, uh, I love him to death, and you know he's one of the players. This is the time. Go ahead and extend him right now. His fourth year is coming up. He'll be playing under contract this year as a draft pick, as opposed to a RFA. But if there's a chance to sign him long term, there could be a good divisible benefit for both sides. I he's a very reasonable player to build your defense around in terms of being a signal caller, who's a who's a very useful safety and very versatile. You know, there's got to be a good divisible benefit level, I would think, that Chuck Clark and the Ravens could both be happy with the security and the money involved. I would agree with that. And we've seen already with Boyle and Tavon Young and um, Peters and other guys that Eric DaCosta has said that they want to keep their own and they'd love to get them signed up before they hit free agency, before they have to play this dance with other teams and outbid other teams. Um, Chuck Clark's a great example. I think when they watch what he does, what he's done with all of this, what you're talking about, I think he's exactly the kind of player, as you said, build the defense around. I think he's a guy that can do it. Um, so I agree with you. I think it would be a, I, I, I would, I haven't heard Eric DeCosta say this, 
but I have to believe that he's on Eric DaCosta's radar as a guy that they want to extend and keep in the building for several more years. All right. Uh, we didn't really, I don't think we really finished talking about packages. I'm going to go r- really quickly through some stuff here, Bo. 16 snaps of base package in this game, which was more than they used any any game this year except for the Rams game when they had 22. Really, the base package is not used very much at all anymore in pro football. It's a response to a sixth offensive lineman for a lot of this game. Uh, the nickel snaps I did mention briefly, they played only 13 total nickel snaps, which is low, but the the uh, uh, Steelers only had 48 competitive offensive snaps. They had uh, excluded from that or a kneel and the fumbled punt, which aren't really uh, defensive snaps, so to speak. But th- they have 13 of those were nickel, seven jumbo and six standard. Uh, and, and once again, I think we're seeing less and less of that standard nickel. They really are figuring to stop the run with 11 personnel. They really need to get Owasso off the field and get a third offensive lineman in there. Sorry, defensive lineman in there. That's been how they've been effective at it. Yeah, and I mean, part of that, you mentioned Owasso. It's been a frustrating year for Owasso. And, um, you know, again, Mosley leaves. He's going to take over as the helmet guy. He's going to take over as the middle of the defense. They did it a few weeks, and it just didn't seem a good fit. They bring in Vines. They bring in Fort. They rotate players in, as you mentioned. And suddenly Owasso, instead of being the heart of this defense, is down to 15, 20 snaps a game. And, and it's, I know he hasn't been real happy with the way this season's turned out. Um, my understanding is he, there was some talk of contracts extensions last year that uh, didn't happen. And in the end, I think it's probably going to be, it's going to cost him because I don't think he'll get the same offers this year coming off this season. But um, it's been tough for him um, because these other players have, the, the way they fit it, He's just been the guy that's pushed aside, as you mentioned. When when they go to these certain packages, Owasso is the one that comes off the field. I know he had a little dust-up with John Harbaugh last weekend. Um, at practice, he was sent off the field, and I wasn't there at the time. I was out in Arizona with family. But John Harbaugh was asked about that. He said, look, he downplayed it for whatever that's worth. He said, hey, you know, they, he said, there's various degrees of these. It, it, this is We've had we've had worse in, in training camp, and you've seen guys get tossed in training camp. It's all good. I don't know, but it, there's been frustration throughout the year for a while, so I know that. But like you said, the way they rotate their packages, the way they bring in Bynes and Fort, and Fort, both of them have played well at times. Mm-hmm. The odd man out a lot of times has been Owasso, and so he's the guy who's seen the reduced time, and I think it's it's kind of weighed on him personally. Yeah, you know, obviously I heard about the, the dust-up as well. One of the things that some people might have missed during the game is Owasso had three special teams tackles in this game, and that included the tackle at the six-yard line on White on the very badly misplayed kickoff. And and that, I think that was right after they, they had the touchdown on the fumble recovery and the punt, if I recall correctly. So anyway, Owasso made that tackle, and then they went to the sidelines quickly, and you see Harbaugh hugging Owasso and talking into his ear. Now, obviously... Harbaugh's an old special teams coach. He's a guy have a huge special teams game. It's it's three tackles. He was right there surrounding the punter, although he didn't make the hit on him. That was that was bored. Uh, he had a big game, obviously, and I thought it was great that Harbaugh, very heartwarming, that that he would take that opportunity to kind of patch things up with him. And I I hope that's the end of that. I suspect it will be, and that's kind of, you know that's how it is for coaches, right? You have to you you, you have to. Uh, it's kind of the up and down and the ebb and the flow of the season. You're with these guys a lot. They're going to cross. They're going to butt heads from time to time. Harbaugh was also asked about that with his uh, 
Owasso special teams effort and said, yeah, you love to see it. If, 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 if what happened over the weekend, if he was challenged, if, if, Har- if Owasso was motivated by the challenge and that led to him elevating his play on special teams or overall, sure, you love to see it. But I can see how Harbaugh would want to seek him out after a play like that and congratulate him because whatever went on and whatever headbutting went on, you know, Harbaugh's, Harbaugh's, he connects with these guys. Almost all of them like to play for him. And so a situation like that, it that's kind of coaching at its essence to be able to do that. Yeah. It's, it's, we A lot of people praise Harbaugh for the analytics this year. He's clearly made a step forward personally to trust his, what I call the headset elves, more in terms of what the decisions are on fourth down or on two-point conversions. But his ability to motivate has never really been in question for me. I think that's always been the strongest part of what John Harbaugh brings to the head coaching role. I agree with you. And like I said, I was very impressed just just a game like yesterday, a game they didn't have to win. Um, but they came out with, a, I thought, with a tremendous amount of energy. And and by and large, they, they, they will compete hard for him. All right. All right. Last thing I want to mention, because people who listen to the show regularly will know, Dime Package, they used a little bit unusual things, a little bit unusual set of uh options here they went back to what i'll call the 2017 to 18 version of their dime package where they used three outside linebackers on the field and they had typically been using all four on the field along with one defensive lineman no inside linebacker for whatever reason they decided we're switching for this game anyway at 18 of the 19 snaps they had three outside linebackers one defensive lineman that was either pierce or Hmm. I should know this, but it's either Pierce Might or I've... Ellis played quite a bit. I don't know if it was him or. No, I, I can I can look it up if I can take a look at my short score sheet, but I don't want to take the time honestly to do sure. it right now. Uh, but Pierce Pierce was most commonly used in that role for certain. Uh, but anyway, the uh, they did have Ricard in it a couple times, but uh, yeah, but in any case. Uh, the point I'm making is that they normally have been using this race car package with with no inside linebacker on the thing. They decided for whatever reason they go to it. 3.9 yards per play, so it certainly didn't fail or anything like that. It's just it's interesting to see that they would they would choose this time to make that change. And I, I do think we'll still see more of the four outside linebacker play package in the playoffs. I think you just get more a little more pass rush opportunity with it. So we'll uh, we'll see how that plays out. Usually at this point in the, in the show, we talk about some individual players, have a little back, back and forth on a bow, but why don't we do this? Why don't you pick a player you'd like to talk about, and we'll just have a little response about it, then I'll pick one, and we'll alternate that way until we think we're done. Sure. I, I'll talk about Brandon Carr. I mean, Brandon Carr is a guy playing in his 192nd straight start. He's in the fourth quarter of the 17th week um, in a game that has no bearing on the standings. And here he comes charging from the far side of the field and tracks down the quarterback from behind, basically to create a safety. Um, and, and as I said, he's just a consummate pro. And the players, coaches love that about him. They're, you know, I, I watched him and I'm thinking, because again, here's a guy, he probably could have opted. Of course, he's got his starting streak going, but he could have played a few snaps and opted out. Um Play 33 years old, week 17, a game that doesn't matter. But he was out there for basically every snap, and then he's the guy that tracks down the quarterback for safety at the end of the game. And I, I, that that play itself just struck me. I said, look at Carr. I mean, he's still going at it at this level, at this age, in this game. 
And so, again, the phrase consummate pro is something Wink Martindale has said about him over and over again, and that play to me totally typified it. Yeah, there's two things about Carr. The first is tremendously impressive game as a pass rusher, and that's most of what he did in this game was rush the yeah. passer. And, you know, he had a sack earlier. Effectively, this was the second sack for safety that gets, you know, nullified by the intentional grounding call. We are Judon lost his double-digit sack here for the same reason, for an intentional right. ground, <laughs> grounding call. But Carr's timing on the blitz is exceptional. And a couple of things about that is oftentimes safeties feel like they need to be running up to the line of scrimmage in order to time their release. And Ed Reed was outstanding at that, at always timing his, his point of getting to the line of scrimmage. He could read the cadence of the opponent to do so. Carr is comfortable blitzing from off the line of scrimmage. And what that effectively means is he's going to more often get a free run than other players who do that. And and sure enough, he had that opportunity, and Foster was too late making his move to get over and, and, and cut him off, and that created another opportunity. It's several free runs in this game. is a, a very impressive, uh, you know, option from that – or. Uh, game from from that perspective for Carr. Very unusual that safety gets to gets to blitz as often as he did. Here's my question about Carr. It seems to me that the signing of Peters, coupled with the likelihood that Humphrey will be the guy at cornerback that they want to extend and pay probably top cornerback money to, means that Jimmy Smith is likely out. The question is, is there room for Brandon Carr due to his versatility to play out the final year of his contract with the same sort of combination role he has and even possibly with the, a permanent move to safety involved? Is there room? Yeah. Uh, I would say a month ago I, I, I didn't see him coming back next year. But, I, you know, he's he's – remember, he didn't play much safety until – well, he started a little bit of training camp. They looked at him a little bit, and then he kind of – and he said at the time, hey, you know, the more you can do, I think he recognized that looking at Jimmy Smith, uh, Marlon Humphrey, they didn't have Peters yet, but they had a couple of young corners, and what was his role going to be? Maybe maybe I should take some reps here at safety. Um, he has developed into a capable safety, and – it could be his future. The fact that he can do both, I think, does add to his value, and he's proven that he can do both and he's and and can compete there. So I didn't think he'd be back next year, but I'm questioning whether that would be the case. Um, so I think if I had a bet, I would still lean against, but it's, it's more and more I'm thinking maybe he will be. Uh, regardless of whether he's back or not, I think it's safe to say this was one of the best free agent signings of Ozzy's career. And he's had a lot of great ones. But he got real value out of a very cheap, very option-laden for the team contract, which essentially was a series of one-year deals. In fact, I remember Carr saying when he first got here that, you know, it's it's essentially a one-year deal. Him saying that to the media directly. And, and you know, now he's... Three more one-year deals later, he's still here, or, or potentially will be here next year for the for the fourth of four one-year deals. Yeah, that's exactly right. That is how it was kind of worded, and then Carr himself. But um, again, he's he, he's he's been a good fit here. Um, it was a relatively cheap deal, especially for the contribution. Again, this is a team. Look, he hasn't missed a start in his whole career. So when guys are missing games, Jimmy Smith is missing games. Um, he doesn't miss games. That's the best thing you can say. He just doesn't miss games. And so um, there's a lot to be said for that. And he's been great in the locker room. Everybody has said that. So I think it's been a real, real 
strong signing by Newsom. All right, I'll pick a quickie. I think how about LJ Fort in the game? I I love the fact that he's still bringing pressure. Doesn't always show up in the stat sheet, but he had a couple of those as I scored it. He also drew a big hold on Villanueva. Now it didn't end up being it ended up being declined because it was on the four yard minus four yard run left where Averett got the tackle. Mm-hmm. And so they end up declining the penalty, but those option-based penalties have tremendous value. So anytime that you can create that, the defensive player is doing that most frequently by being in the right position or by struggling to get away from the lineman in a way. Villanueva had moved out to level two. There was really no reason for him to hold in that situation, as is often the case. But the actions of the defender often can force that to occur. Well, I've been impressed with Fort all along, and I, I'll admit I didn't know that much about him when they signed him, and um, they signed Bynes the same week, and Bynes is coming back to the team he played with the Super Bowl, and this is a great story, but but Fort has been a real good, steady pickup for them. Another guy that they since have extended, um, and he's also, if you watch, he's also been a real big contributor on special teams. Um, he's often one of the disruptive guys when they when they blow up a kick return or um, so real solid pickup for them. All right, your turn. Another player that I like? Another, another player. Well, we talked a little bit about before. I really liked what I saw from Justice Hill. I think the last two games he's really um, kind of starting to find himself. And, and it's one thing on the swing passes, which I think is one of the things they like to do with him, get the ball out to him in space. Um, and see if he can be elusive and quick. And the one last night, um, RG3 just flat out missed him. He was there, and it was open, and he just didn't get it to him, and Griffin was mad at himself on that one. But to watch Hill bounce off players up the middle and score at his size was something that, like I said, it looked more like Ingram. Um, And I think Hill's another guy that in the past two weeks especially is really starting to play with more and more confidence. And so – Ingram, they think, will be back for this playoffs. They hope he'll be back with that calf injury. But um, I like what I've seen the last two weeks out of Hill. They will have to make a move if he isn't back. They'll have to find that running back they like on the street to be the third guy. They were shorthanded in this game. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised at how well the offense did. We normally, Bo, just to, to tell you structurally, we normally talk about the offense tomorrow night in the podcast. So this is really about the defense. But I respect okay. that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Hill anyway. I'm, I'm going to move on. I'm going to say Michael Pierce is a player who had just a huge game here. Two enormous pancakes of very stout men. The first was on DeCastro for a pressure. He just rolled right over him. I don't know if he stepped on his foot, but Castro went down like a little girl, going, you know, falling over backwards. Pierce trotted effectively all over him. Uh, he also knocked down the center Finney on top of Snell at the eight-yard line. So this it was, it was a second and goal at the six. His minus two on the play looked like it could have been an injury for starters, set up third and goal at the eight. Pierce is just so physical and so athletic week after week. Obviously doesn't get a lot of the attention. I still think, you know, the, re- the free agents are going to fall out as they, as they will, but he is a player who the Ravens will have a lot of trouble duplicating what he does, regardless of how great they are at finding interior linemen. No, he's had a great year. And remember, give him a lot of credit. This is a guy that got basically tossed off the practice field in June yeah. for being way overweight. And it was a story for a month was what in the world happened to Michael Pierce. Um, and he came back in August and he was remorseful. He said all the right things. He said it got away from him. He did this and that. He was embarrassed and he, and and set about re-earning the trust of his teammates and the coaches and 
and he's played hard. He's had a consistently strong year. Um, I personally don't think they're going to be able to bring him back because they've already got so much money locked up in Brandon Williams. Um, how much money can you put into two interior defenders? Um, but you, to your point, yeah, if he leaves in free agency, they're, they're, it's not easy to duplicate what he does. He's been really good at it. Um, the math for how whether you can bring him back will be another question for another day. But I remember that play down by the six or seven yard line you talked about because when he, when you notice Pierce, it's those plays where he just destroys the middle of the yes. line, and that's what he did on that play. And and he's done it, you know, plenty of times in his career with the Ravens. But he definitely that play specifically, I do remember. All right, your turn. Anybody else you want to talk about? Well, it was Anthony Averett, right? Anthony Averett's a guy that, um, again, started a couple games early in the year when Jimmy Smith was hurt and before they had traded for Peters. And at times he looked exposed and um, they knew what he was. He's a second year, fourth round pick, hadn't played much. Get him out there as a starter. And he struggled in a couple of those games against Cleveland, I remember. He played, I think he started against Arizona. He had some missed tackles along the way. Um, and so for the past five weeks, he didn't play at all. I don't think he was active. So they obviously hadn't seen enough from him on special teams to make him active as one of the fifth, uh, 46 on the game day. And then he came out in the game uh, against the Steelers and with Jimmy Smith taking the game off. Um, Aver's out there pretty much the whole game. Um, he was matched up against Schuster a few times, and they tested him a couple of times. I know that I remember they threw deep to Schuster. If I remember one in the end zone with Averett in coverage, um, so, you know, he's not ready to step in to be a starter right now, but I think that was an important game for him because he had to kind of get his legs back under him and they had to see what he could do in a situation like that. And I think it can only help to have him in that situation, having played there. So he was a guy, again, we talked about Marshall too, but Avery was a guy I did want to see play last night. And I thought he actually played pretty well. Yeah, I, I thought he was outstanding and, and uh, he's on my MVP list. We'll just get to it in a minute here. But but Averett uh, used the boundary exceptionally well in this game. And he, one of the things about corners I love to see is when they can pinch that guy to the corner. But that's not that's not all that they have to do. When you have the boundary there, you're you're overlapping coverage radius. You always talk about catch radius, but the, but the, the defensive back also has a coverage radius that goes with that forces the quarterback to either take a big risk throwing that ball into your coverage radius, which might end up an interception, or, and most quarterbacks are this way, they want to make the perfect throw in that in that situation with tight coverage, and it's particularly tight on the boundary. It's easier to keep that. And by presenting that to Hodges, he's forcing Hodges to really try and make the perfect throw. There's never a defense against it anyway if they do make it, but when he's close and those balls are just getting overthrown a little bit, it's because he's presented that coverage radius to Hodges. So I really, I really love what he did in this game. He used the boundary exceptionally well. You've got you've got it right about the one in Schuster in the end zone. But all four of his targets were long on the left side. They were nine, thirty-five, eight, and twenty-four yards uh, from the line of scrimmage, and all close to that uh, left sideline. And uh, all of them were were off in one way or another. So one actually did go right through the hands, nine yards downfield between the hands of Washington, but. Great coverage day for Averitt. Really sorry that he couldn't pick up that interception at the end of the game. Yeah, I know. It was right in his hands. I did remember that one it happened right in front of me was the, uh, I forget which one it was, but it wasn't the Schuster touchdown to, or to the end zone. But another one, you mentioned using the boundary, and I stopped that too. I think the pass ended up being maybe a little bit to the outsider, as you said. That's part mm -hmm. of the way he defended it. 
And he did. He kind of led that receiver right out of bounds. And then, of course, the throw gets led right out of bounds as well. Um, to use a boundary to your phrase, I thought he did that really well. All right. Outstanding. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I, if you have any other player you'd like to talk about, I think I'm tapped out here. Well, I talked about Pecco. Like I said, I've been really impressed with him for the last month. I watched him stand up these offensive linemen um, in the last two or three games. I'm thinking, wow, that guy was, what was this guy doing on the street? Right. Um, and he's playing younger than his age, I think. And he's loving being here with his team. And again, Pecco's another guy. Pecco, Peters, Bynes, Ellis, none of these guys have lost since they joined this team. So, but I've been, Pecco's another I've been really impressed with. So I, I already mentioned him, but he, he too strikes me, you know, the last few games as someone that has been just a real solid addition. Now, there's something funny going on with Pecco because he played all those years at Cincinnati. And frankly, I think he might have been misused there. And one of the things he's going, he's a fairly productive tackler while he was in Cincinnati. But one thing that happened was on Pro Football Focus, he always graded out fairly poorly when he was in Cincinnati, or just average at best. Mm -hmm. But his last two years, he's played at Denver. And my guess is, because he's a system player and other people saw things in him they liked about him, as opposed to a guy they really wanted to jam a heavy workload on, they were able to pick out the best of Pecco at a later age in life and probably get a fresher Pecco out of out of that arrangement. And he scored a lot better you know, via PFF the last couple of years. Not the be-all, end-all, but I look at it and I say, you know, this is not the normal relationship in an aging player that you get better with age, but he's the perfect kind of player for the Ravens, who Martindale is a master of snap management and a master of specific usage of individual talent. He's not he's not just trying to use Pecco as a square peg in a round hole to play 35 snaps of rotational defensive tackle. He's trying to put him in for the right snaps that make the most sense. No, and it's good. Snap management, as you said, the rotations, and and you're right, it's worked really well. But so he's another. I've been I've been really impressed with him. All right. Now, normally at this point, Bo, we go through the MVPs and we do kind of like three, two, one by hockey stars. Do you want to play along with me? If you have if you have people, or do you want to react to my name? However you'd like to do. I'll, I'll go. I'll react to yours. Go ahead. Sounds good. My number three guy is Pierce. I felt bad leaving Judon off the list with a with a sack for eleven. We talked a little bit about Pierce, what he accomplished in this field, but being that big piece in the middle. Uh, he, he was just way more valuable than what you get out of the stat sheet. I totally agree. All right. My number two guy is Averett. We talked a lot about him already in terms of what he did in the boundary. No, and like I said, I think it was a game, an important game for him, and it was an important game for um, the coaching staff to see what they could, what he could be. Because again, if you make these, you're going to make these roster decisions coming up on maybe on Jimmy Smith and maybe on Brandon Carr. Um, and whether you think Avery can move into a role might inform your decision on those other two. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, the Ravens have three very expensive cornerbacks on the roster right now. Marlon Humphrey, in terms of draft capital right now, I put in that class. But Tavon Young didn't play this year, but he's a $10 million man. And, that you know, he'll be coming back next year. And then, of course, they now have Peters to, to a big contract. It's healthy for a team to have at least one player at each position group that they're rotating in and giving an opportunity to young players. So I, I really hope that Averett and Marshall are guys who will stick around on the roster. I, I expect they will because they'll be a third and a second year player next year. But they need to have some of that rotational youth to come into those positions as injuries naturally occur. They do. And I, I would suspect no one's told me this, but I would suspect they'd like to see more from Aver on special teams. If they had seen it, he'd probably be in that 46 on game day. He's been active several weeks and 
reserve cornerbacks are usually guys that you find on kick team, punt team or whatever, and he hasn't been there. So I think I imagine they're going to like to see more from him there because then that adds to his value as well. All right. My number one guy, Brandon Carr, you already talked about him earlier in terms of the great pass rush game. You have anything else to add? No, like I said, consummate pro. I, the way I watched him, try, I, and I did strike. Obviously, he's passing, he's rushing. He's in the backfield more than you expect with him or more than we've seen from him. But I'm just watching how he approaches everything. And the, him tracking down at his age, tracking down that guy in week 17, fourth quarter, last game with nothing on the line. Uh, it was just such an impressive effort from him. Fun to see. Fun to see. Josh, uh, we can move on to the mailbag now. We have anything there? Yeah, let's get to a couple mailbag questions. Again, you can get your questions in on the mailbag using the hashtag FilmStudyMailbag on Twitter or going over to the message board link over on FilmStudyBaltimore.com. Uh, first one up is a question kind of comment about John Harbaugh. Now that everyone's looking past at the decade and decade in Baltimore sports, is John Harbaugh the biggest name and the biggest impact to sports Baltimore in the past 10 years? Hmm. Bo, you'd be a good one on this. I'm thinking baseball. I'm thinking it might be Manny Machado, who is the, who is the biggest single, single, single impact. I mean, maybe Adam Jones was here through all of that from 2008 Mm -hmm. on, um, through all their, through their, Playoff runs. Showalter was here to get this organ, the Orioles organization, back on track. Um, but with the Super Bowl and now number one seed here, it's you know it's those questions are tough. But he certainly have to be at the top of a list. Terrell Suggs uh, here for the entire period in Baltimore, including the good and the bad. Uh, I I don't think I would put Joe Flacco as the guy, although he certainly had an influence in terms of of what happened here that was significant. I, I, you know, I'm having a, having a hard time. I, I can't think of anybody else. There's no other sport that it would be unless you want to count Michael Phelps, maybe. Yeah. I was trying to go back through and figure I'd have to go back and look at his numbers for which, which years it was that he was here for, whether it was this decade or last decade, I kind of probably straddled the two. Um, certainly he'd have to be in any discussion of probably one decade or the other. I, again, off the top of my head, I can't remember which ones he, um, did most of his work in. Right. But you got to think, yeah, that, that Super Bowl puts John Harbaugh ahead of any Orioles because they never got to the championship. Fair enough. Um, all right. Uh, next, uh, uh, let's stick with John Harbaugh for a minute. And he keep, kept using the word revolutionary at the beginning. Now the Ravens are coming out with, yeah, we, we showed you that was revolutionary. We set a whole bunch of records. Do you really look back at this season as a revolutionary offense? I think I think the numbers kind of bear it out uh, fairly obviously. I think that it's not just the fact what Lamar Jackson has done; it's the other things they've done around Lamar Jackson. It's the choices they make on fourth down to change the offense to be more tailored to Lamar Jackson. It's the other players, particularly the tight ends and Project Pat, they have to help run that offense. It's it's everything. Yeah, I mean, we talk, it's right. It's, in the end, it's still 11 players, and you're still running, and you're still passing. And, and we said at some point, it's almost like an old-school offense as much as they run, but it's not. But it looks nothing like those old-school offenses where you had like a power eye with a fullback and a running back, and you handed the ball to the running back, and the running back carried 250 times, and the fullback carried 90 times. And, 
you threw to your two receivers in the split. It's nothing like that. So it does look totally different from those offenses that were putting the big running numbers up 40 years ago, these old school, as they call it, offenses. To Ken's point, the analytics and the going for it on fourth down more than any other team, um, that's a lot different and than it used to be. And Harbaugh's been totally comfortable doing that. When he talked about being revolutionary, he never really talked about that side of it. It was all about like what we're going to do with this offense and these tight ends and this quarterback. Um, but yes, I think it has been something that um, we, we haven't seen. Obviously, we haven't seen. They're doing things that have never been done before. So I'll give him that. Going back to the Cowboys offenses of the 70s, uh, one of the things that was very striking about that was the use of pre-step motion to try and confuse the opponent. You know, they would they would have three or four guys moving around before they would have to get set, and then obviously you only have one guy in motion at that point. But it was that's the only offense I can think of of that era that really employed deception to any sort of meaningful level. This this offense it's not it's not about passing, it's not about running, it's about deception. I mean, that's what that's the basic component, the basic currency of this offense. No, it is, and and you know when he's putting the ball into the belly of Ingram, is he keeping or is he not keeping it? The formations with the two tight ends and the and the running back behind him, or you know the everything about it, the the way they bring Snead or often Ricard in motion right before the. You're right. I mean, but it, it, the, the basic guts of it is Jackson getting the snap. Is he giving it? Is he not giving it? If he's not giving it, is he running? Is he passing? So it, deception it, it is exactly what it comes down to. All right, I want to sneak a couple uh, offense mailbag questions in here. And first one up is obviously is a good step off of this revolutionary thing because uh, it's a copycat league. So next year, year after, people are going to try to do what the Ravens did without Lamar. They won't have Lamar. Did RG3 show anything to you guys that he can play and start in the NFL? I have an opinion on that, but you start, Bo, if you like. I think... Um, to me, he looked like a solid backup quarterback in that game. Having said that, the conditions were miserable. Um, and so I think that's part of it. I don't think watching him in what we saw in training camp and in so far, the little bit that we've seen. No, I don't think he's the quarterback Jackson is. He's still an incredible athlete. He can still run. He's still pretty fast. I think he's a backup quarterback at this point but i did this last night's game i just think the conditions were miserable and i think that had something to do with passes being off target not all but some um so it, i don't see him coming back in and being a guy that's going to become a starter and throw 30 touchdown passes and start for team 15 games i don't see that maybe it'll happen and it's hard to sell you know any of these nfl athletes short they're incredible but uh with him last night it struck me as he looked like a backup quarterback to me that's where i am too i i I even would draw something else to it it shows you basically how few quarterbacks i think really can run the read option the way jackson does and and one of the things i really look at with rg3 is he does not have the read skills that jackson has jackson probably because he's been doing it his whole life reads the leverage of that edge defender like nobody else's business. And he pulls it out as soon as he's figured out that that defender's on the wrong leg. 
that's just not where Griffin is. And I'm not he's a smart guy. He probably could get there, but then he's going to be a step short in terms of speed, in terms of that quick trich, quick trich ability to juice, sorry, to juke his opponent. He's never going to be the same as Jackson. I, I just I think it shows how few quarterbacks there probably are in the league. And Jackson is sorry, Griffin is an elite athlete, but he's still not able to run that offense anywhere near like Jackson is. Well, that's to your point. That's the other thing I think when I look at Griffin. I mean, Griffin is a He's an incredible athlete, and I watch him, and I'm thinking, there's just something that's not, it doesn't quite fire the way it does with Jackson. It tells you as much about Jackson, that, or it tells you more about Jackson than it does about Griffin, in my opinion. But, um, and to your point about reading, I think that's a great point. Um, Jackson does it exceptionally well, but Griffin is a tremendous athlete but you even see a drop in athleticism from jackson to griffin which tells you how good an athlete jackson is so people will say it's a copy of that cat lead it's a copy of cat lead yeah maybe but it's only going to work if you have another guy like Jackson. and there just aren't guys like jackson out there to come full circle on this whole thing we started off with greg roman and the team that thinks they're going to just take greg roman and get whatever quarterback is one notch below Jackson to run this same offense is going to get much reduced efficiency out of that out of this scheme, right? And it's not really fair to Roman to to uh, to have to think to expect that um, because and, and Roman has to know that I would think um, that you want to put different. It's not it's not as simple as saying I mean eleven guys on the field and Roman's not the wizard that turns those eleven guys into this. It's the players that are doing it and starting with Jackson who has just singular talent. All right. Oh, outstanding. Go, go ahead, Josh. All right. Speaking of uh singular talent, Justin Tucker, even with all the talk of going for it on fourth so much this season, he put up one hundred and forty one points again for the fourth time in a row to tie his franchise record again. Uh of course, doing it one point at a time instead of a lot of field goals this year. How important has Justin Tucker been to this team? <laughs> Just for consistency. Yeah, uh, absurdly, he's he's worth every dollar they paid him. How about I say that? Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, he's he's. He, I was sitting at the game last night with. Um, there were a couple of people from ESPN and I think one from Pittsburgh to my left and they, and I could overhear them talking and they basically said Tucker gives them gives the Ravens the edge in special teams every game they play um, and and you know he misses one kick and suddenly everyone's there's something wrong with Justin Tucker something wrong with Justin Tucker um, no nothing's wrong with Justin Tucker he had a 47 yarder last night while he was falling down um, so he's tremendously important, and I there's and you have confidence that he's going to do it every time. And again, I will also echo what he often says. He gives credit to the operation Cook and Cox. Cox is solid, solid long snapper. Cook's a tremendous holder. Jerry Rosberg once called him the best holder in the history of football. I don't know how you ever evaluate that, but <laughs> it just goes to show you that. Um, the whole operation works. And and to go four for four last night from those distances in that weather, it has to come down to a solid snap and a really good holder from your from your holder because he's dealing with a really wet ball. Um, so Tucker will always credit those guys as well. But no, he's, he's hugely important. 
A big, a big drop off this year. Missed two extra points, two of the three in his career. But he's also made 28 out of 29 field goals. Second highest percentage of his career. It's the fewest field goals of his career, which is a little bit surprising. And he hasn't made a bunch of long ones this year. Nothing over 51. But he sure has made some important ones, including the game winner against San Francisco, which was, that was, what, 48, 49 yards. And he made the overtime one at Pittsburgh, if I remember right, to the windy yes. end of the field. Um, to that to that end of the field where it's not an easy kick, and I believe that one was in the 40s. But again, he's not kicked as many because what talked about earlier, Jackson is converting in the red zone, and this offense is operating efficiently enough that they're not trotting him out there for 25 yarders like they did last year. Well, and the other thing is they won't they won't try a fourth and four kick anymore from the 36 yard line. That would be an automatic 54 yard attempt before. Now it's you go for it. Right, and those two games that you pointed out were the only three-point games this season. Um, all right, let's close out the mailbag on, on this one. You guys talked a lot about the possibilities of people leaving the Ravens, but how attractive are the Ravens are to come back to? We've always talked about how classy of an organization they are, that people want to come back after they've been here. But for new free agents, does this whole brotherhood and stuff that we see as fans also attract other players? I tell you what attracts other players is 14 and two that attracts other players. Um, And so you can try to capitalize or discuss the brotherhood. And Tony Jefferson has been a strong recruiter for this team. Um, He helped recruit Ingram. He's helped recruit other players, but Lamar Jackson is going to be a recruiter without knowing it. 14 and two is a recruiter. Absolutely. So those things will certainly make this an attractive destination for free agents. And, you know, cap space is always going to be a question and needs are going to be a question. But I think the combination of going 14 and two and the combination of having one of the most dynamic players in the league, who, by the way, is loved in that locker room from player one through player 53. um, Those both will have big effects on on free agents in terms of looking at this organization as one they want to come to. To to add to what Bo has just said, I think eight weeks ago with the win over New England, the league's model franchise changed hands. Uh, you know, the Ravens are now the number one seed. They've they've done an unbelievable job in the front office always, but in particular in this year, finding street level talent to make changes to 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 basically wood putty over a a defense that had a lot of holes early in the season. Both coordinators are highly sought after. Now they might both not be here next year. It's true. Or or only one might be here, but they're at the top of their game. You have the hot young quarterback. In fact, the hot young player in the entire league playing for this team. And let's face it. That's a lot of what built new England was the coach and the player both being there at the same time. I really think now the Ravens are the model franchise. They're the team that everybody wants to be like as you move forward. No, I agree. And they're led by a coach that people like to play for. And as you said, they've got, they've got a quarterback who it's one thing to be a quarterback who's good and who can um, succeed and put up flashy stats. But if you watch that locker room, um, there isn't a player in that room that doesn't feel like Jackson sincerely cares for them. And that may sound corny, but it's, but it's, it just speaks to the idea that everyone is behind him and he's, he's got an energy that is just infectious. And I'll bring up a point, a play that I, that I referenced a couple weeks ago 
Um, it was the game against the Jets on Thursday night. And it was late in the game. Gus, Gus Edwards went on about a 35-yard run, got knocked out of bounds. But this is, this is late in the game. The game's pretty much over. RG3 is running the offense. Jackson's not even in the game. And Edwards comes in, gets a good long run. Again, Edwards wasn't starting either. Gets a good long run, gets knocked out of bounds. Jackson was the one that ran down from the bench area about 15 yards down the sideline to where Edwards got knocked out of bounds. And it was Jackson wearing a winter stocking hat because he wasn't in the game anymore that, that runs down there and helps Edwards up at the end of the play. Um, and you don't, players see that. And the energy that he shows is genuine. And like I said, I think from player one to player 53 in that locker room, they're totally behind him. And so, it's totally so. Let's say you're a free agent. You know someone who's on this team. Hey, what's this team like? What's Jackson like? Oh, Jackson. There's no one in that locker room that's not going to say Jackson's a great guy to be around. And so, all of that's going to help this team when it comes to other players who want to play here. All right, outstanding. I think that's so funny. When last season, this time we were talking about would people want to come and play with a running quarterback, and would that be attractive? <laughs> and I think we've all learned our lesson in the past year. Uh, Bo, thanks for joining us. I uh, want to make sure that people are checking out Pressbox Online for your writing, that they're following you on Twitter at Smoka on Twitter. Any other plugs we can get on for you? I just learned on your uh, website that you write kids' books, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for you in the, uh, in the little kids' flyers that they bring home for uh, books to buy at school. Yeah, I've written a few. I haven't written one in a few years. I wrote one on the Ravens a few years ago. I wrote a couple on Negro Leagues Baseball. Um, I was thinking to myself, it would be fun to do on Lamar Jackson. I don't have one in the works, but if it, if it ever comes up, I'd love to. So, um, but yeah, thanks. No, at B S M O L K A. I'll be, I'll have my Ravens, um, stuff up there, you know, obviously through this playoff run. So thank you. All right. Bo, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for joining us so much. This is a great episode. Love having you on. We've always known who you were around town, but to have you on, you actually get you on for an extended episode, which we really appreciate. Uh, thanks so much. All right, you're welcome. Thank you. And Ken, uh, filmstudybaltimore.com, you've got the uh, defensive report broken down up there, right? It's out there now. A lot of things we talked about today, but there's more detail out there, including some play-by-play star treatment uh, lists that we make for for some of the big players, allow you to go back, use your Game Pass subscription, look at the film, see if you're seeing the same things I am. All right. Well, uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to go review the show on iTunes and keep spreading the word. We've got plenty of content uh, prepared for you to get through this uh, next two weeks without football. Birdland Sports. For fans, by fans. Find more great shows like this at birdlandsports.com. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon. 
versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. If you have a family relying on your income, you need life insurance. But finding the best quote shouldn't take a lifetime. That's where Policy Genius comes in. In minutes, Policy Genius could save you 50% or more simply by comparing quotes from America's top insurers. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team handles all the paperwork and red tape. To save on life insurance and get protection for you and your family, head to policygenius.com today. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.